New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Today, I'm hosting Richard Louvre, author of Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. I'm speaking with Richard at his home by remote connection. Welcome, Richard, to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you. It's nice to have you. You know, what you're offering in this book and all of your work is a hope in this technological age as you make a case for a more empathetic approach to the relationship to our habitat and the creatures we share it with. And I believe it's your experience that um, many people are suffering from what is called nature deficit disorder And along with this is an epidemic of loneliness, and not just for human companionship, but also longing for connection with nature. So I'd like to ask you to please walk us through your thinking on where we are as a culture and what we can do to reconstruct our present trajectory. Well, I've written four books about what I called nature deficit disorder in the first book, Last Child in the Woods. That was a tongue-in-cheek phrase that I used in the book. I did not mean it as a medical diagnosis, though maybe it should be. And it entered the language to my great surprise. In fact, it's entered a few languages. And it offered people a way to talk about, particularly parents, what they had noticed, which was that their kids weren't playing outdoors very much. And things that we took for granted as a generation were disappearing in terms of that kind of freedom, that kind of connection to nature, that kind of sense of awe and wonder even. This applies to us as adults as well. We also have nature deficit disorder. Out of that first book came a movement that is now in many countries to connect kids and their families and their communities to nature. And it's grown immensely, again, to my great surprise. But I think that illustrates just how hungry we are. In the latest book, in Our Wild Calling, I perhaps do a sharper point on that when I talk about our relationship with other animals and, and our species loneliness, specific to uh, our relationship with other species, that we are desperate to feel that we are not alone in the universe. Why else would we look for Bigfoot? Yeah. Why else would we look for intelligent life on other planets when Stephen Hawking tells us that might not be a good idea to find? It's because we are desperate not to feel alone in the universe, and obviously has religious implications. And in the new book, I make the case that, surprise, we're not alone in the universe. And now, you know, during the pandemic, we've learned, many of us intuitively and sometimes directly, that no, we're not alone. When we don't have people around us as much, we start noticing the life outside our window. We start yearning for that. We start talking to the birds right outside our window. And that I see this as an antidote to the deep, deep 
human loneliness that we're experiencing that is actually, I think, rooted in, in species loneliness. I'm reminded as you talk about that and talk about birds in particular, I was once on a vision quest and on the eastern slopes of the Sierra and just outside of Mount Whitney. And on the first day, I noticed three crows riding the thermals. They weren't flapping or anything. They were looking like they were eagles or something. And these crows were just gliding down the thermals. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I've never seen that before. And then on the third day, I heard all this squawking. It was just a huge racket. And it was the three crows. <laughs> and they were flapping back up the opposite way, up the thermals. And I was thinking about Mark Twain when he wrote about the Blue Jays were great at swearing or something. And um, I just imagine they were saying to each other, well, whose bright idea was this? You know, because they were just squawking at one another like mad. Uh, so this is just like one of those little moments when you're just like get a glimpse into something other than our human lives and feel into another whole life. Well, you know, crows hold funeral services. It's quite a phenomenon. I've seen this where you'll see a tree just filled with crows. And by the way, a group of crows, this is strange, but a group of crows is officially called a murder of crows. Why? We don't know. Some people think it might be associated with the Civil War on the battlefield after the battle. But the, the tree will fill with crows, and they'll be making this huge racket. And if you look closely, often there'll be a dead crow on the ground underneath the tree. And they come from all around to do that. In Our World Calling, I talk about what I call the oldest language, that there is a language beyond words. And it is probably older than the species that are alive today, most of them. Uh, and uh, there's an eco-psychologist on the West Coast who's been putting together what she calls nature language. And in, in my book, I call the oldest language. And I credit her with her work in the book. But she's coming up with not only sounds, but movements and actions and behaviors and cataloging them and saying, this is what we have in common. This is how we talk with other animals and how they talk to each other. And it's quite complex, and it's very convincing what she's doing. And John Young, who teaches bird language, takes people out and teaches this. Once you begin to listen and watch these behaviors, you realize in this, that we're surrounded by a great whisper. We're surrounded by a great conversation that is going on all the time. And we can hear it. We can sense it. We can see it if we pay attention. And that's the key of paying attention. That's the key to feeling just a little bit less alone in the universe. And I'm thinking too, Richard, that if we sit long enough and quiet enough, things show up. You know, maybe when we first sit down, it kind of disturbs the environment. But if we just kind of sit quietly and observe that's hard for us to do because we're so busy, busy, busy in our lives. But if we just sit quietly in some landscape and let it speak to us, do you think that's a good idea? Kids, when they have the chance to do that, it comes naturally. 
um, to many kids. I think we also, in addition to paying attention in that way, we have to pull back and put it in an even larger context. And this begins for many kids with their pets. With us, we're still in touch with this, with our pets. And in in our raw calling, I, I write about my dog when I was a kid. His name was Banner. He was a collie. And I spent much of my boyhood in the woods behind our house with Banner. And my parents may not have known where I was, but my dog always did. And in fact, he would go home when I was up to no good. And my mother would know it immediately that I was up to no good. And she'd come, Banner would bring her back. I never laugh or make fun of the TV series Lassie because I, I had a dog like that and or he had me. And in the book, I write about how I always had this sense that Banner was teaching me some ethics. I would watch him with other dogs in the neighborhood and the smaller dogs. He would actually protect smaller animals from bigger animals. He didn't like our cat, but he put up with our cat every morning. We'd let him out to do their business and the cat would be underneath Banner because this is a, a neighborhood, no fences and a lot of mean dogs. And Banner would go out with a cat. He pulled me out of the creek once when I went through the ice. He pulled my little brother from the street by his diapers. <laughs> he did these things. And I watched him. And I always had this sense that Banner was teaching me some ethics. I said this once to an animal behavioralist who laughed at me. He said, no, no, that's just a dog being a dog. He had all kinds of explanations for it. I said, no, I think he was. When I was writing Our Wild Calling, there's a, several parts where I mentioned wolves, people's experience with wolves. And I did some looking into the research on this, and I found two German scientists who had really looked into the evolution of dogs and where they come from. There's a couple theories about where dogs came from. They all descend from gray wolves, no matter how big they are. And there's a couple theories. One is that we domesticated wolves. We threw bones outside the fire slowly. They came closer, you know, and they became part of our family. The other theory, and I actually think both of these theories are probably true. The other theory is the wolves domesticated us. <laughs> I that, love it. That we followed packs of wolves. Our ancestors followed them when they were hunting, when they were trailing the herd and hunting the herd. We followed them and watched how they hunted. And we noticed that they hunted as a pack. They used teamwork. Not only that, we watched them with their families at the den. Wolves have very tight families, very good families. And so this theory that these German scientists had is that we picked up some of that from wolves. I mention that because when I read that, I was thinking about Banner, my dog, and I said, that's it. Those ethics that those, and the scientists actually use the word ethics, the ethics that our ancestors saw in wolves passed down through 30,000 years to my dog, Banner, who passed them to me. You know, it reminds me of another story in your book about a man who, and this is like the power of the small. He just ended up watching uh, some ants with a piece of apple and watched that kind of cooperation. When we stop and give our attention to even small things, 
then we can really appreciate all the connections that we're making to all of the life that surrounds us. And it's good to point out that not all the stories are about charismatic animals. That Yes, that's one of the stories. And one of the things that people report, and I, and I kind of categorize the altered states that people go into, one of them is that time disappears or bends. Another one is their sense of scale changes radically. And just get on your stomach and watch an anthill for a while. And, and your sense of scale of the world really changes. And one of the stories in there is a guy named Rick Cool, a scientist in Canada, who, when he was a student, he was looking through a microscope at a one-celled animal. And he noticed how it was there, and then suddenly it was over there. He didn't even see it move. He said, how can that be? And he said he realized in that moment, it's one of those moments, that that one-celled animal had agency, had made a decision not to be here, but to be over there. And I know that sounds awfully simplistic, but that changed his life as a scientist. And it made him aware of all of the decisions made around him that he's not aware of. And that life, that conversation is going on all, all around us. We're not alone in the universe. Thank you for helping us see this more clearly. And I just want to end on some idea of how we can move ourselves in a better trajectory rather than just, let's say, conserving nature, but actually knowing we're embedded in nature and allowing our decisions we make of how we build things and how we build cities and urban situations and how we can invite in other than human life into our lives. In the book, I talk about the reciprocity principle, as I call it, which says that conservation is no longer enough. Now, we need to give back more than we take from other forms of life. Every time we build a building, we've got to build it with other creatures in mind, with places for butterfly migration routes to return to birds, all of that. In public health, we're learning this during the pandemic. Much of this problem has resulted, uh, Jane Goodall has certainly said this, from our mistreatment of animals. We have to reimagine our cities, not as the enemies of biodiversity, but as engines of biodiversity. Biodiversity happens to be an antidote to what are called zoonotic diseases that jump from one creature to another. And these spread when nature is out of balance. We have to begin to think in terms of multiple solutions that can be done for multiple problems at the same time. An example of that is if we set aside great areas of forest, not monoculture forests, but biodiverse forests, if we create not only guard and protect, but create vast areas, that does several things. It reduces the threat for mass extinctions. It reduces the threat of biodiversity collapse that is going on right now. It reduces the threat of pandemic diseases spreading, and it reduces climate disruption because those vast forests become carbon sinks. We need to create that, not just protect what is, but create that by thinking very differently about where and how we live. 
And you know what? In the end, we get a nature-rich life out of that. And so do all these other creatures. One of the problems we have, and this precedes the pandemic, is I've made the case that we are in a dystopic trance. We have become in love with despair. You know, Martin Luther King said and demonstrated in many ways that any movement, any culture will fail if it cannot paint a picture of a world that people will want to go to. When I talk to audiences over the last more than a decade about these issues, I ask people what images they attach in their minds right now, not thinking. What do you see in the far future? And almost all of the images that come to people's minds look like Mad Max or Blade Runner. You know, it's a post-apocalyptic world that they imagine. What happens when those are the major images, sometimes the only images, that our culture carries around about the far future? That's what we're going to get. You know, be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. Be careful what you imagine. You just might get it. So that's why, you know, I talk about the need for two things. And Glenn Albrecht has talked about one of these, a philosopher in Australia. We need two additional elements to the way we think about the future, to environmentalism and, and all of the rest. One is love. The great social movements that have to some degree succeeded, whether it's feminism or gay rights or to a degree civil rights, all of those are about relationship, about love. We've been trying to sell environmental challenges, climate change, you know, doing something about that with data. Obviously, it's not doing the trick. Science is essential, but it's not closing the deal. It's not moving people to action to the degree we need to move. Only love will do that. Love for all of the creatures with which we live. The second element is hope, but not blind hope, imaginative hope. We need to imagine a world we want to go to. Kids are great at this when they start doing it. We need to imagine new kinds of cities that nurture life, that are engines, as I said, of biodiversity. We need to imagine new kinds of homes, new kinds of workplaces. We need to imagine vast new areas of the earth that are covered with life that engenders other life, that protects all life from climate disruption, that gives life. When you begin to see the future with those kind of images, it looks pretty good. That's a future we'll want to go to. But we have to start doing that. As long as we remain in the dystopic trance, we will not do that. It's time to start. Wonderful, wonderful. Richard, I want to thank you so much for being part of the New Dimensions Cafe today. I've been speaking with Richard Louvre, author of Our Wild Calling, How Connecting with Animals Can Transform Our Lives and Save Theirs. If you want to learn more about his work, you can go to his website, richardlouv.com. He spells his last name L-O-U-V, is in Victor, L-O-U-V, richardlouv.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us on the New Dimensions Cafe, and I invite you, please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. 
This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.